Welcome everyone to our webinar uh, called Straining Under the Backlog, colon, Fixing a U.S. Immigration Court System in Crisis. My name is Doris Meissner, and I'm a senior fellow here at the Migration Policy Institute, where I direct our work on U.S. issues, U.S. program issues. We're going to begin with just two points on logistics. If you have questions, please email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. We will have a Q&A uh, at the end of the call, final section of the segment of the webinar. So please type any of your questions for the speakers into the Q&A box at any point during the webinar. Uh, this webinar marks the release of a new MPI report. It's called At the Breaking Point, Rethinking the U.S. Immigration Court System. You can find it on MPI's website. The the uh, report is the most recent piece of work, the most recent piece of research and policy that we have done on a continuing body of work that is taking place at MPI, which we call Rethinking U.S. Immigration Policy. The courts, of course, have been a troubled element of the immigration system for many years. Numerous prior looks at the court system have called for significant changes and they are the kinds of changes that could happen only through legislation. Because legislation is so very unlikely, we don't address that issue in this work. Instead, what we have focused on here is what can be done now, what can be done with the current system through administrative executive branch authorities. Our findings and recommendations are based on extensive research and wide-ranging consultations. We've held a series of convenings. We've done many, many individual interviews with stakeholders, including the Executive Office for Immigration Review, whose director, David Neal, is here with us today. So we're going to go ahead now and have a presentation by one of the co-authors of the report, Muzaffar Shishti, my colleague, who is a senior fellow at MPI and director of our MPI office at NYU School of Law. And after he makes a presentation about the findings and recommendations, some of them in the report, we will have responses um, from three parts of the immigration court spectrum uh, that are important to the operations of the courts. The EOR itself with David Neal, the director of the Executive Office for Immigration Review, Blas Nunez Neto, uh, uh, from the Department of Homeland Security. And um, uh, Blas is the Assistant Secretary for Border and Immigration Policy and the Acting Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at DHS. And finally, Jojo Anabile, who is the Executive Director of the Immigrant, Immigrant Justice Corps in New York from the standpoint of practitioners. So with that, let me turn the stage over to Muzapar. Muz, please go ahead. Uh, Doris, and thank you to everyone who has joined us this morning for this important conversation. I'm one of the co-authors of this report. The other authors, uh, Doris, uh, Stevia Lair, uh, Chris Levesque, and Kathleen Bush-Joseph. Uh, they have all contributed immensely to this over the length that took us to prepare this report. The number of uh, people to be acknowledged for this, I particularly want to highlight Sarah Pierce, who used to be a uh, policy analyst at MPI, who contributed 
considerably to the initial thinking of this report. So the, the US immigration court system and the immigration enforcement system are deeply interconnected. I mean, those of us who have been in the field have known that, but I think most people don't. It took us a lot of time to understand how deeply these, these things were, were connected. And they're both in some state of crisis. Uh, there are 2 million immigration cases pending in the immigration court system today. To be precise, about 1,979,313 cases as of April of 2023. And this level of backlog is a much recent phenomenon. The caseload in the last five years is, has gone up like six times in the previous five years. In the last fiscal year alone, 708,000 cases were added to the backlog. That's about 160,000 cases more than any prior year. Our analysis suggests that if without adding any new cases, if all IJs today would just want to just bring their caseloads under control within one year, they'll have to quintuple their output. So we know that this is a very, very tough task ahead. And, and I really have a lot of sympathy for, for David to preside over this enterprise. But it's not just the quantity of cases that matters. It's the kind of cases that are entering the system. Today, 40% of all caseload are asylum seekers. Now, asylum cases are complex. They take long time to resolve. It may take about four years in some cases just to get your first hearing, and then many more years for the case to be completed. So these long times of resolution means two things. First is that those who are eligible, actually eligible for the protection of asylum are deprived of that for a long time. And those who do not meet the test are not really removed because by the time the removal order happens, they have had long, deep roots in the community where the removal becomes very difficult. So the combination of these years-long backlog and the inability then and the likelihood that they will be returned is what we think is at the heart of our broken asylum system. Now, this brokenness, if that's the word, contributes to the pull factors at the border. This is what drives large number of people to come and seek the entry at the US-Mexico border. Now, the factors that have led to the case load have deep and wide ranging roots. The longstanding operational challenges at the EOIR and the new flows at the border because of the crisis in the Americas, both economic and political and, and other uh, challenges of democracy building have really contributed to this. It's the scope of these twin challenges that has made it important to address both of them at the same time. We know that the EOIR has taken a lot of steps to streamline their policies. And we know that the head of the EOIR is, is doing his best to accomplish the full complement of immigration judges that have been authorized. But the challenges before the court system are really very daunting. To us, it's the quantity of the caseload and the quality of the decision-making that has made the task at the UAR very difficult. To the quantity, 
during the number of cases that had been closed administratively in the Obama administration were reopened by the Trump administration, which added to the whole backlog. The, the Trump administration had a very aggressive enforcement policies in the interior of the country that added to the caseload in the court system. And since 2016, the border crossings have accelerated, which has led to the growth of asylum seekers coming to the border and then entering the immigration court system. But cases also take much longer to complete. In fiscal year 09, each immigration judge completed about 1,000 cases per year. By fiscal year 21, the completion rate had gone down to 200 cases per year, even when new immigration judges were added to the, to the, to the pool of judges. Thus, more judges alone is not the answer. We know that slow hiring, high turnover, lack of support staff has resulted in overwhelmed judges. And the overwhelmed judges without any more supporting staff has not has has decreased their productivity and and has grown the backlog over the years. You know, the concerns about the quality of the decision making has been a subject of concern for decades now. Uh, more than one in five cases decided by immigration judges are appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals. And appeals from the Board of Immigration uh, Appeals has inundated the the, the appeals, the courts of appeals in various parts of the country causing a lot of uh, consternation among the federal ballot uh, court judges. Now, this is the policy changes of the BIA, the ever-changing docket priorities from one administration to the other, and various recent Supreme Court directives have contributed to this diminished adjudicative quality. Similarly, the wide variation among the IJs in the same court and across different courts in the country have also led to the concerns. If you look at the rates of denial of asylum applications, they range any place from one to 100% in the, in the fiscal year 17 to 22. ICE attorneys play a very critical role in the immigration court system. The, the volume and the nature of the cases that flow into the immigration court system has a lot to do with the prosecutorial discretion that are exercised by ICE attorneys. And lastly, the lack of representation is plaguing the entire immigration system. Respondents in immigration court proceedings face life-threatening circumstances if they're faced with a removal. But we also know that representation improves due process, fair outcomes, and efficiency in the proceedings but most people in our immigration court system today go without the assistance of legal representation. Uh, one element that has been notable in the, uh, as a significant change in the border management has a lot of role to play in the caseload in the immigration court system. And that's the asylum officer rule that the Biden administration implemented in June 22, which would take all the new border cases seeking asylum to the asylum officers in the first instance and not to the immigration judges and only appeals from that 
uh, without a de novo hearing in a more streamlined basis would be taken to the immigration courts. Now that uh, uh, rule has, or the implementation of that rule has been put on pause uh, when the administration was dealing with the lifting of Title 42. And we think that coming back to that rule is important for this case flow to come into control. We offer, and I'll be very quick about this, we offer recommendations in five areas. Uh, the first is to strengthen the immigration court systems management and efficiency. We believe that, that for the initial period of maybe up to one to two years, all new cases should be scheduled on a last in first this time basis. This concept has been tried before in the past and that has led to good results. Uh, and we believe that that will actually decrease the processing of uh, cases from years to months. Since it does, this disadvantage cases were already the pipeline. We, we recommend that this be tried only on a temporary basis till there is semblance of control in the backlogs. We recommend that, that cases that do not meet the prosecutorial discretion criteria that the Biden administration has announced and now the Supreme Court has given a green signal to should be terminated that there's no reason to flood the immigration cases with, which are not the high priority of this administration. We also believe that there should be a central case referral from DHS instead of all three branches of DHS sending cases to the UIR. We believe that ICE attorneys should initiate all cases because they are the de facto prosecutors on behalf of the government. It would be good to streamline the process. We also believe that we should establish two tiers of immigration judges, like the magistrate immigration judges and merits immigration judges. That's some more procedural matters, like a master calendar hearing, uh, sort of getting a, getting a, a postponement on the hearing, on, or putting in more evidence. That those kind of the functions should easily be done by uh, by a magistrate judge and not by a merits judge who should who should be really reserved for the full uh, assessment of a case. And we finally believe that we should have some specialized dockets where expertise of judges can be used more prominently. That could be applied for juveniles, for families, the review of credible fear determinations, cancellation of removal, adjustment of cases, and sometimes voluntary departures. We think that will streamline the functioning of the court system. The second set of recommendations are about the asylum officer rule. We do believe that the government should restart the asylum officer rule, that we do believe that that will lend efficiency for the treatment of new asylum cases and will get those cases resolved faster, and that will bring less and less cases into the immigration court system. The third set of recommendation cases are about the use of technology in the immigration court system. We believe the technology is important. COVID-19, if nothing else, taught that we are getting more used to technology uh, in various functions of, of the justice system. But we should ensure that technology is used to mate, make courts fairer for everyone involved, such as by holding hearings when parties can be are, are unable to attend in-person hearings, but special attention should be paid to use of technology when it uh, applies to detained non-citizens and vulnerable populations like children. And the last set of recommendations involves legal representation. 
Uh, we know the legal representation is very critical in all parts of the immigration uh, court system. We believe that EOIR should establish a new unit within the EOIR to devote for the coordinating of agencies' efforts for expanded representation. That unit should collaborate with the not for uh, governmental sector for the coordination of such immigration legal representation services. We believe that they should, we should develop new and innovative ways to scale up representation by coordinating with lawyers who take responsibility for specific parts of a case. We may not be able to today have one lawyer be involved in all cases from bond hearing to the final order removal. The distinct parts of the cases could be handled by different lawyers in various places of that, of that, of that life of a case. And we think that scaling up can be done only by non-lawyers. We cannot scale up this challenge by, by lawyers. So training and supervision of non-lawyers, accredited representatives is very important. We also believe that some accredited representatives should be allowed to do some nominal functions like filing a master calendar hearing, filing for a continuance uh, without being a fully accredited, uh, accredited representative. And we should probably have a third tier of accredited representatives or people who can just file cases and file various applications without being either lawyers or fully representatives. And finally, since federal government lawyers cannot be spent on representing people removal proceedings, we encourage efforts by state and local governments to provide an increased funding, which has been a recent trend, but we believe that this should be multiplied. Uh, the proposals in the report that we are putting forward today, we believe hold the potential to reduce case volumes increase the pace of decision-making and improve the quality of adjudications. Thank you. Louis, thank you very much. That was a very good tight summary. There's a lot more in this report to read about that is informative as well as uh, uh, wrinkle or you know, uh, further ideas along the lines of the highlights that Moose uh, presented, but um, that's a good overview. So. Based on that overview, um, we'd like now to hear some reactions from people whose roles and responsibilities are not only very familiar with the issues, but are implicated in some of the things that we've talked about in the report. And for that, let's begin with you, David Neal, um, Director of the Executive Office for Immigration Review. Well, Doris and Music. Let me start off by saying on behalf of the Department of Justice, my colleagues at EOIR, thank you for the opportunity to participate today. I applaud MPI for your attention to the challenges that are facing the immigration court system. And as the two of you well know, even if it's difficult to hear, we appreciate the objective feedback on not only how we can deal with our current situation, but how we can improve on being a court system. I especially appreciate that your report, which is somewhat breathtaking in its scope, I commend you. I mean, it recognizes the complexity of the challenges of facing EOIR, and that much of our current circumstances originate from outside the agency. So thank you for observing that. Well, as your report points out, the sheer volume of cases that are entering into the immigration court system is increasing our difficulty as an agency to satisfy our dual obligation to be fair and to be efficient. 
This past year, we set a record for completing cases, over 313,000 completions. At the same time, DHS was diligent. They filed over 700,000 new cases, more than twice what we could complete. This fiscal year is gonna be comparable. We're probably on the cusp of completing half a million cases, more than we've ever done in history. And in turn, we see things are on track for a million new cases to be filed with the immigration courts. You know, we have much to work on, but that what we have to work on is in the context of this reality that EOR is facing. We are facing a truly daunting volume. That being the case, we are implementing mechanisms, large and small, to do everything we can within our means to complete cases more timely and more fairly. Um, your report touches on so many things. It's quite a buffet, I have to say, but if I may, I'd like to highlight a couple of areas that your report focuses on where I believe the agency is making strides and I just wanted to comment on. First, fairness and efficiency are both served when the respondent is represented or at very least better informed. The agency is engaged in a concerted, multi-layered effort to increase legal access to the immigration courts. And that includes measures to facilitate representation and to expand self-help services to pro se respondents where we can. For example, we created a national pro bono steering committee and a pro bono committee in every immigration court to engage the stakeholders in promoting volunteer representation. We've eliminated a two-year backlog in our recognition and accreditation program. And we're looking for ways in which we can make that program more robust for the nonprofit organizations that participate. Recently, we promulgated limited appearance regulations that allow service providers to help non-citizens fill out applications for asylum and other forms of relief. That helps respondents present their case and it creates more clarity for the judge that reviews the application. And I'd like to add that we've expanded the Immigration Court Help Desk Program in the last two years from five to 24 sites. And we've reinstituted a front of the court program for volunteers to assist pro se respondents when they're in court. We've been implementing these and other measures to promote representation and pro se information. And I would be remiss if I don't point out, we appreciate the excellent suggestions from the stakeholder community and their partnership on our efforts to improve representation, to increase it, and to improve our ability to provide information to respondents. Second thing I'd like to just touch on quickly is how we are working to improve virtual hearings. Um, Moose is correct. Virtual hearings is part of our world. I appreciate that not everyone is a fan, but the virtual hearings are, are here to stay. They are critical to yours ability to conduct hearings nationwide and other courts, criminal and family, for example, they conduct them routinely. Now, admittedly, COVID forced the agency to expand our virtual hearings program faster than we would have liked, but the agency is making considerable strides to improve our bandwidth and to improve and upgrade our technical infrastructure. As I hope will become more visible in the coming months, we are focused on improving the virtual hearing environment and experience. 
Last year, I issued a director's memorandum on internet-based hearings to improve how and, and give judges guidance on the conduct of virtual hearings. In that memo hit upon several common courtroom practices, ranging from common sense basics, such as the judge making sure everyone in the room can see and hear one another, to operational practicalities, such as the court needs to make sure that there are points of contact for the public when there are technical issues. And instructions to the judges that all things being equal, try to accommodate the preference of counsel when it comes to in-person or virtual media. That memo is our starting point. It is incumbent upon us as a court system to keep striving to improve our protocols and our practices to make this technology as fair as it can be and as efficient as it can be. There are segments of the stakeholder community who have been quite persistent in their advocacy that EOR do a better job with this technology. And whether or not we agree with them on any specific point, I want your listeners to know that we are grateful for their efforts to drive us to be more conscientious in how we use this hearing medium. I realize we're pressed for time. I'll end my comments there. I look forward to the questions and uh, the comments of my colleagues. Thank you again for participating today. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, let's move now to DHS uh, and to DHS. Uh, and we we uh, point out quite fully in this report that DHS plays an important role in the system here, that it isn't simply the immigration courts, that the immigration courts are part of the immigration enforcement system. So Laz, uh, if you could uh, give us some reactions from the standpoint of uh, the work that you do and uh, DHS's um, uh, responsibilities on what it is that we're saying here and what it is that you would like to have people in the audience understand about the DHS role in all of this. Sure, thank you, Doris, and and also want to echo David's thanks to MPI. You know, both for producing the the thoughtful report that you've released this week, and for convening this conversation, which is uh, very timely, uh, obviously given the events of the last few years and and the numbers, the daunting numbers that David um, walked through in terms of the EOR uh, caseload. Um, I also, you know, just want to. Uh, uh, highlight um you know what what you said earlier which is you know it is uh, clear that the length of time it is now taking to get through the immigration court process has become a significant pull factor that is driving migration throughout the region you know we we see migrants now routinely paying smuggling organizations you know what are vast sums of money for them often more than 10 to 15 thousand dollars uh, you know, to facilitate their journey uh, to the border. Uh, this is uh, so lucrative, in fact, that we are now seeing the drug cartels increasingly becoming uh, a key player in, you know, not just collecting uh, taxes for people who transit through their territory, which is what we saw historically, but actually, you know, uh, moving people and, and becoming deeply involved in human smuggling, not just in Mexico, but throughout the region, including, you know, in, in Colombia and the Darien region. Um, you know, and the, the simple fact is that this entire system that we're talking about was developed decades ago during an era where 98% of our border encounters were Mexican nationals who were coming to work and really limited numbers of people were uh, seeking protection or claiming asylum at the border. 
you know, today, by contrast, Mexican nationals are accounting for, you know, somewhere between a quarter and a third of our encounters, and the vast majority of the people that we encounter at the border are coming from uh, other countries, many of whom uh, ultimately uh, seek protection, even though relatively few of them actually end up receiving it uh, at the end of this process that takes, uh, you know, many years. Um, and we can obviously debate many of these underlying issues, and I know there's a diversity of views probably in our audience and in the country here. But I think the bottom line uh, that David mentioned as well is that our, our system that includes EOR, it includes DHS uh, and uh, other key players, you know, such as the Marshall Service, we're just simply not resourced to keep pace with the changing demographics and just the increase in numbers that we have seen at the border. Um, we, like Eeyore, have been committed to finding ways to streamline all of our processes. And as I think, as everybody knows, we've taken a series of steps using our executive authorities, uh, and that includes you know, the asylum officer rule, which you mentioned, Doris, the dedicated docket, and um, of course, the circumvention of lawful pathways rule that has been in the news this week. Uh, and all of these measures were intended to address you know, some of the issues and challenges that we are seeing with the system. Uh, you know, we've also been working internally on, I think, critically important and what I think will be transformative measures, including uh, the digital A-file initiative and uh, our ability to uh, produce electronic NTAs that will significantly streamline uh, our processing at the border and ultimately our you know, communication with EOR in terms of uh, sharing information. Um, those efforts are well underway and are already starting to yield some beneficial results. And we hope um, in the coming uh, year that that will you know, filter throughout um, the system. I think in terms of the specific um, uh, recommendations that you've made in the report, you know, we will certainly um, look at uh, how we can uh, uh, implement some of them or, or consider implementing some of them. I, you know, from our standpoint, um, you know, we uh, have been, as I said, focused on uh, streamlining the handoff between our agencies and your to make it seamless to allow for the scheduling of hearings and the transfer of information, you know, to not have to go through email and, um, you know, even phone calls as we had traditionally done, but through these digital processes. Um, I'm intrigued by the recommendation about having OPLA do all of the referrals. We'll have to look into that. I will say that within our DHS ecosystem, you know, OPLA is one of the, the most under-resourced parts of the immigration um, system at DHS. And um, so that may be a, a challenge, but it's certainly one we can look at. Um, I was also frankly intrigued by your recommendation that the courts um, consider going to a last in first out model. You know, we have been obviously doing that um, ourselves here at DHS in many of our asylum processes. Um, in order to um, expedite, um, you know, kind of reduce the length of time it takes people to go through the process. And I, I think that's something we will likely uh, want to explore, although I appreciate that that is a complex system. Um, I would be remiss, Doris, and I know you, you said in the beginning that we are focusing on administrative things we can do, um, but I, I will note um, that I think it is, you know, clear and we are clear-eyed that the only real lasting and durable solution to these challenges that we've faced, we've described today, 
you know, involves the U.S. Congress updating some of these um, laws. You know, I think the the bottom line is that we will have, I think, for the next few years, uh, a significant number of new people entering the immigration court system, even as Eeyore, as David noted, um, is, you know, taking extraordinary measures to process record numbers of people, uh, as are we, um, but we are encountering record numbers of people. And so the system is just not keeping up with what we are seeing at the border, particularly, as I said, the changing nationalities that we've been encountering at the border, which we can certainly talk about. But, um, you know, I think this is a really complicated uh, challenge that um, we obviously, you know, will need to address and and really um, just want to end by thanking David for Eeyore's partnership. We have been um, working, I think, more closely with Eeyore in the last few years than than we ever have before. And, and that will obviously be critical as we move forward in the future. So thank you, Doris, and look forward to this conversation. Thank you, Blas. Thanks very much. And certainly thank you for pointing to Congress. We always need to do so. Um, but um, uh, in the meanwhile, uh, thanks for the ideas that you have um, uh, suggested here. Some of them I hope people will ask further questions about when we get to the Q&A. But uh, before that, Jojo, we're turning to you now as a practitioner. Um, you deal with these issues uh, every day and with one of the largest legal services entities in the country, the Immigrant Justice Corps in New York. Um, talk to us and our audience about how you see these issues and how you see some of these ideas. Sure. So Doris, thank you so much to you and MPI for this invitation. And I want to acknowledge my fellow uh, panelists for their work as well. Um, just wanted to say, I have this forum, so I want to thank all those who've been doing this work, really applaud the lawyers, non-lawyers, social workers, accredited reps, law students, clinics, who have basically been doing this work for a very long time. It's challenging, but you are always there trying to protect our clients and keep families together. Thank you. Um, my comments are informed by my own experience and also the experience from our fellows, young, limited, newly minted lawyers who are coming into this field. Before I start, Moose, so you quoted 1.9 million um, people in removal proceedings. Track numbers is now 2.4 million. Tells you how quickly this number is increasing, out of which about 990,000 are asylum seekers. We talked about how EOIR has closed a lot of cases. Track says about 480,000, 179,000 were deported, and only 17.9% had counsel. So what you have done with this report is basically highlighting one of the most crucial parts of this problem, access to counsel. It's of utmost importance. I'd like to talk about a few things that we are seeing on the ground and then link it to some of the recommendations you've made. So on the legal services front, I can tell you right now that everyone is at organizational capacity in terms of staffing, in terms of infrastructure. We have cases that have been on our books for a very long time. 
cases that are not closing, cases that are pending, right? Making it very difficult for us, even when you implement initiatives for us to be able to participate fully in it. Take the asylum rules and the asylum busing that recently happened. It's been very difficult to provide representation. So what have some of our uh, organizations done? Look to clinics, asylum clinics, Pro Se Plus, which is that you help them file the application within the one year deadline and also help them file for employment authorization. I also want to talk about late notices and no notices. We've seen a lot of that recently for some time now. It's really rare. Just imagine sitting in your office, going through the EOIR case management system and realizing that the case that you were preparing for for November, you have other cases you're working on, has been brought in to August or even July and have to prepare your client to be able to go in and litigate this case. It's causing a lot of confusion amongst our, our, our staff because it's very unnerving. Instead of doing, let's say, two hearings a month, you are, we are turning around and doing 10 hearings a month. It's, an, it's, it's not possible for us to for continue doing that. We're also having challenges with biometrics. We understand that our clients have to be fingerprinted. They're always fingerprinted at the beginning of proceedings. However, they also have to be reprinted if the prints are more than 15 months uh, old. Why is the burden still on our clients to do that? There's a nine month backlog. If fingerprints are not current or refreshed, that means that cases are put over, right? Prolonging the time we have to work on these cases or decisions are not made. I also want to talk about detention, transfers. So we are seeing a lot of transfers from places where there is representation, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Illinois. All these people and all these states have implemented representation, universal representation where people, where immigrants will get counsel. We are moving them to the Southwest where there are not enough resources. We have resources in New York, New Jersey, and some of these places, but can't find our clients because our clients are stashed away in Louisiana. So when we talk most about all these recommendations you're making, a critical part of it is that will our clients have counsel? Will EORA, let's look at what is the lowest hanging fruit that we can work with. All this requires collaboration. There are three stakeholders in this work, EOIR, the government, respondent, and lawyers. We have to work together. So as we think about some of these recommendations, based on what I've just told you about our challenges, taking what you've just said about um, what we can do in immigration court, recalendering, triaging cases. Yes, we can do that. It can't be one-sided. Let us be participants in it. We can also help. Give local jurisdictions the authority to make decisions. We constantly hear, I have to check in with Washington. Washington can't make all the decisions. Sometimes local conditions require that we make certain decisions very quickly to move this thing. 
We started this conversation with a report that was written recently at 1.9, we are 2.4. Maybe in three months when we talk again, we'll be talking about 3 million. There is an urgency here, an urgency to fix this, an urgency to do something within the next 15 to 18 months. We have an opportunity to do that. And looking at Moose, I appreciate this whole idea about non-lawyers. We can't do this work only with lawyers. We have to continue to train non-lawyers, accredited reps, to be able to do this work. And we've been trying to do some of this work. I applaud the philanthropists and foundations who've put money into this to move the, the needle, but we can't do it alone. We have to do it with government. And I would love for us to collaborate more, set up work, working groups in each jurisdiction. We've done it before. We did it in New York during the influx of children and it worked where government, nonprofits, AILA and, and EIR came together to figure out how do you work together to make sure that you can protect the interests of children or families and others. We can't put in measures where we don't have lawyers. The new asylum rule, fine, we can work on it, but you have to have counsel. There has to be some measure of counsel in it. So I'll stop here and um, we'll take questions. Okay, we've set the table now with all kinds of issues and perspectives. And so it's time for the audience to weigh in. Um, we have quite a few questions that have already come in and I will try to get to as many of them as I can. Um, but while we're doing that, please type any further questions into the Q&A or the chat box or email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. Or you can also tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy uh, or uh, or hashtag mpi.discuss. So um, let me go to some of the questions that have been up here. First of all, um, uh, is a question for you, Blas. So the question is, the uh, programs like the recently expanded family reunification program, humanitarian paroles, et cetera, in other words, the uh, uh, legal pathways that the administration has been establishing. Can you explain how they help ease the burdens on the immigration system overall? Sure. So, um, you know, I think in, in general, our approach um, has been that, you know, we would like to see individuals using safe and orderly pathways and processes and, and uh, to come uh, into the country. There are obviously a, a wide range of different measures we've done. We've taken over the last two years to try to incentivize people to use these pathways. That obviously includes um, the family reunification parole programs that you mentioned, which you know allow individuals who um, have U.S. Uh, citizen family members in the United States to rejoin their family here and go through um, the uh, you know the the green card process while they are in the United States. Um, we view that as a significant um, benefit, uh, you know, both for the individual but also. Um, for us as a department and the immigration system at large, because, you know, some of those individuals uh, lose patience with the process and, uh, you know, sometimes come uh, irregularly into the country. And that puts a, an enormous 
strain on the families and also uh, on our system. Um, I think some of the other uh, processes you mentioned, you know, our Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela um, processes, you know, those individuals enter with a grant of parole that uh, is valid for two years. These are uh, many of these individuals are people who would otherwise have chosen to cross uh, irregularly at the border. Uh, we think there's a significant public benefit uh, associated with channeling people into these um, lawful processes and reducing, importantly, the number of encounters we see, you know, in between ports of entry who end up in the immigration court system. Uh, and so um, that is, um, you know, kind of the overall thinking of the department. And obviously, we are committed to continuing to impose consequences on those who uh, come in uh, between the ports of entry. And we can talk a little bit about that if people have questions. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Now, this is a question I think, David, that you would be able to answer. Maybe it, and uh, let me ask it, and then you can tell me and we'll figure, it, figure out. But why are we not allowed to adjust our status when we have a pending asylum case, if we have other legal paths for a green card? If we're allowed to stay in the country legally, why should that not be sufficient to adjusting our status in the country? Maybe that's a specialized legal question that we'll have to get to separately. Uh, does anyone does anybody know the answer quickly, or should we answer that after the after the webinar when we talk to a lawyer? Well, Georgia is the best person on this panel, but my assumption this is a statutory issue that people who did not enter with authorization are barred from adjusting status in the United States, and I think that's where the disqualifying criteria okay. comes in. Right. So it is statutory. Okay. Yeah. And let me go from that to uh, a question for you, Blas, uh, which is that the administration has said it will issue a rule to define the ambiguous particular social group asylum ground in part to improve court efficiency and adjudication. Is there a time frame for that rule to be issued? So we, we have been working, you know, steadily on uh, the rule. I don't have a, a time frame I can share other than to note that it, you know, continues to be a high priority for the department uh, to, you know, promulgate this regulation. As I think everybody knows, the rulemaking process can take a, a great deal of time. And, you know, this rule in particular uh, is pretty complicated. But I think, you know, the goal of the rule is really to um, streamline the adjudication, um, you know, of a lot of these uh, particular social groups and other uh, matters that, um, you know, right now um, are uh, handled differently depending on what circuit um, than asylum office is. And so we'd like to really streamline um, the process, uh, both uh, to benefit our asylum adjudications, but also obviously to benefit individuals who are going through the process. Um, there is a question here, uh, how much will it cost above current appropriations levels to implement these recommendations? I can answer that, we don't know. We have not uh, been able to make those calculations, but I'm gonna turn that into a question, uh, I guess, again, to Blas, do you, could you explain what is in the current uh, uh, budget request assuming that we get a budget uh, this year that might help the resource picture for the immigration court system? Ooh, I don't have those numbers in front of me, Doris. I, I could but say, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I, 
Yeah, so, you know, we have been consistently asking, for example, for additional asylum officers, um, you know, through our appropriations in order to fund the AO rule that you mentioned, as well as other uh, work that uh, the Asylum Corps is doing. I think we have a, you know, like Eeyore, we have a huge and growing backlog of asylum, uh, affirmative asylum cases that we need to really uh, address. Um, and so, uh, we will continue to seek uh, congressional support for increasing the asylum corps. In terms of the the things that are in the report, I think the one that most directly would impact us are the recommendations. Um, you know, both to to try to terminate uh, uh, cases using prosecutorial discretion and also to centralize referrals through OPLA. Uh, both of those recommendations would require significant increases in OPLA staffing. And I know we are seeking additional OPLA uh, personnel, but um, probably nowhere near enough to actually implement the, those two recommendations. If I may offer something in compliment to what Blas was saying, I don't have specific information at my tip of the tongue, but um, the package also would include another 150 immigration judges if it goes through. Um, as you may know, we've made a concerted effort to increase the size of our immigration judge corps and that we are guardedly optimistic that we're going to reach the appropriated level of 734 judges by the end of this fiscal. Um, if the budget goes through as we hope, there'll be another 150 judges and of course associated staff. Um, whether that's to, enough to address the larger picture remains to be seen, but we're hoping for a significant increase in our, our resources with the next budget. But like everyone else, we're waiting to see where the Senate and the House come out in the end in their negotiations. I, if I may, Doris, I mean, I, and you've spoken about this in the past as well, but I, you know, I think, I think one of the challenges we've seen over the last few decades really is that, you know, we continue to resource frontline uh, enforcement at the border at a much higher rate than we do the rest of the system. And, you know, that has just consistently happened. Uh, every time there's a debate about what's happening at the border, we see increases for CBP and they, they to be clear, they need those resources, but we, we also need to resource the rest of the system to keep pace with what we're seeing at the border. And we just simply haven't over the last, you know, many, many years. I think that is hopefully starting to change a little bit, but you know, hiring people in the federal government is a a long and painful process. Uh, you know, and and uh, and so you know, appropriated money today really will only start yielding results in a year or two. And so that's why we need to make sure we're constantly uh, advocating for that kind of funding for you know our asylum corps, for EOR, for the U.S. Marshals to help with the rest of the system. Well, that's certainly the case. And what we try very hard to point out is exactly that, that this is a system and the system can only really work effectively if it's able to work together effectively from a resource standpoint. So let's go to this issue of last in, first out. That is part of our recommendations here. David, let me ask you, um, from the standpoint of the courts, does a last in, first out system create any improvements for you or does it lead to reshufflings that ultimately become more complex uh, and, 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 and don't achieve their goal? What, what, what would be your reflections on the last in effort? 
Well, frankly, as a strategy, much of it depends on what's well, the devils in the details, right? It's on the one hand, and then your report points this out, there's an advantage in that you're going to get more immediate turnaround for the more recent cases. But you have to be mindful of what is the domino effect for the folks that were first in. And, and you know, what's the impact on, on cases that are already long pending? Uh, I actually think it's 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 intriguing. And, and I want to not only talk to folks internally, but with my government colleagues, right, the Department of Homeland Security, because we do want to maximize the turnaround time. So receptive to it. But to be honest, I've seen it work well and I've seen it work poorly depending on the parameters. Um, so it's it's worth thinking through, but I, I would want to think through particulars before I know how applicable it would be in this instance. Can I jump in here? Um, I, I think uh, I started by talking about our organizational challenges. And when we go to a first in, uh, sorry, last in, first out, it leaves a lot of our clients without remedy because, for example, I have an asylum client who's been waiting four years, five years for a hearing. Suddenly we go into last in, first out, and their case is recalendered two more years. They have family abroad that they would like to bring in. So we've seen this happen most recently when judges were sent to the border to basically uh, deal with issues at the border where people who didn't have counsel were deported. If we're going to do that, it has to be married with representation. There has to be representation attached to it. It can't be a system where last in, first out, and people are being shuffled out and deported without representation. Counsel is so important in this. We've seen what how staggering it is in terms of outcomes. I just also wanted to touch on something because we don't have a lot of time, but someone had asked about accredited reps. There's a lot of work being done with non-lawyers currently, where there's a VISTA program that trains non-lawyers. At IJC, we are also working on community fellows who basically are doing some of this work. But basically, what we are saying is that there's a lot more that can be done. So there's training opportunities, there are recruiting of non-lawyers to be done. And I just wanted to make sure that that is um, made um, clear here. Thank you. Uh, uh, Blas, this is a question for you. And it has to do with the point you made about delays in the court system being full factors. Could you expand on that point? What's the relationship? I kind of referenced it in in my um, introduction, you know, we are um, many these days in order to come to the border, the majority, if not, you know, the vast, vast majority of people we encounter have had to engage smugglers for, you know, large portions of the journey. Many of the people, you know, who are not from Northern Central America or Mexico that we encounter, which these days, you know, represents a, a, an enormous proportion of our encounters, are transiting the Darien as well. And the, the cost of this journey can be in the ten dollars to $15,000 uh, per person in order to come to the border. Um, and when you think about um, the fact that many of these people are coming from uh, you know, countries uh, that are challenged economically, that is just a huge investment for people to be making. And, and one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is why? Like, why would someone pay that much money 
to come to the border. And I think the, the simple answer is that, you know, the length of the process once they arrive um, means that people can, you know, and once they're in the immigration court system and they have, um, you know, filed the requisite paperwork, uh, they are eligible for employment authorization, which is obviously something we support. Um, but that means that they have years to, uh, you know, live in the U.S. and go through the process and and um, and, and earn money, right? And, and they can uh, support their family members back home during that process. Um, all of these factors together, I think, are just drawing people um, to come because even if someone is ordered removed after, you know, four to six years, um, uh, that is still a, a substantial amount of time for people to be able to be in the United States and, and working through the process. And so, um, you know, again, I think these are all things that are important. We want to be able, uh, we want people who are in the process to be able to support themselves. So the EAD is critical. And we have actually streamlined the process for people to apply for EADs. Um, but I think the confluence of factors together, you know, make it, um, especially in light of, you know, continuing, um, uh, Congress's continuing inability to provide other legal means for people to come. Um, I think we are, you know, seeing the court system uh, essentially become um, uh, a proxy legal pathway for people to come into the United States uh, and work while they're here. And, um, you know, I think that is just a, a, an increasing challenge that we are, are facing, and it's leading to these huge uh, backlogs that we are seeing in the courts as well. Okay, thank you very much, Blas. Uh, we have come to the end of our time. There are a considerable number of additional questions that people have written in. We will try to answer as many of them uh, uh, offline as we possibly can. But let me thank you for your audience. Thank you to the audience for all of your interest and your attention. Thank you particularly to our panel, uh, Moose, Blas, David, Jojo, uh, for participating and for uh, being part of this exercise. There will be uh, an audio and video recording available on our website of this event. Uh, reporters who may have questions can contact Michelle Middlestadt at middlestadt.migrationpolicy.org with follow-up questions. Please make sure to check MPI's website for our new report at the breaking point, Rethinking the U.S. Immigration Court System, and also check out all the other reports that we have released on the various components of the U.S. immigration system that are part of our Rethinking U.S. Immigration Policy initiative. Thanks everybody for joining us. Have a very good day and now we will close.